the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. We've covered a number of aspects of Sharia, its secrecy, for instance, and uh, we talked last time about its, uh, you know, initial developments. In fact, I think we called it uh, from Arab um, uh, legal culture to Talmud. But today we'll continue with that theme, obviously, and with me here uh, to do this amazing job, our dear brother Lloyd DeYoung. Lloyd, thank you so much, brother, for what you do, and thank you for your uh, detailed explanations. It's even more detailed than the Quranic detailed explanation, if I may add. So go ahead, brother. Uh, continue with your uh, explanations of Sharia in a way that I think it's going to be extremely powerful and educational and informative to anyone watching this series. Thank you, Alfani. Very honored. Right. So this series, well, this slide is entitled Christianity is Abrogated. It is replaced. Now, this is in the Islamic law, the Sharia. And you'll see here, this is in the Reliance of the Traveler, which I showed previously. This is the finality of the Prophet's message, section W4.0. And it states here, this section has been translated to clarify possible confusions among Muslims as to Islam's place amongst world religions. Now, of course, there's lots of back and forth, many opinions. However, the, we are now working with what is called the ijma, the consensus of the scholars, the final interpretation of the scholars to the final position. This is the orthodox position of Islam across all the four schools. And it states here, previously revealed religions were valid in their own eras, but were abrogated by the universal message of Islam, as is equally attested by many verses of the Quran. Both points are worthy of attention that one, Christianity, Judaism, other religions were valid before, but they were canceled. They were abrogated by Islam. And this is worthy of attention from English-speaking Muslims who are occasionally exposed to erroneous theories advanced by some teachers and Quran translators. So in other words, now, what this means is in practice that Christianity is viewed as Deen al-Batl. Islam is Deen al-Haq, the religion of truth. Now, that's, there are many words that can describe that. I'll just pause there for that. But we are Deen al-Batl. Al-Batl is the false, the vain, the void religion, the worthless religion. When void, we speak, obsolete, we you know, not valid, expired, you know, if you want to Correct. Use that. So basically, when we pray, our words fall like dust at our feet. Allah does not listen to us. And Islam is the Deen al-Haq, the religion of truth, the religion of, well, we'll, we'll, we'll explain as we go. And also, Batl is also one of the names of Satan. So therefore, Christianity, according to Islamic law, is also the religion, the false religion of Satan. That is according to the orthodox position within the Sharia. Now, affirming these religions' validity, right? So this is continuing from the previous slide. Erroneous theories advanced by some teachers and Quran translators affirming these religions' validity 
but denying or not mentioning their abrogation, or that his unbelief it is kufr to hold that the remnant cults now bearing the names of formerly valid religions such as Christianity or Judaism are acceptable to Allah after he sent the final messenger to the entire world. This is a matter over which there is no disagreement among Islamic scholars. If an English-speaking Muslim at times discuss it as if there were some question, the only reason is that no one has yet offered them a translation of a scholarly Quranic exegesis, a tafsir, to explain the accord between the various Quranic verses and their agreement with the Sunnah. Islam is the final religion that Allah Most High will never lessen or abrogate. Yes. Thoughts on Fadi? No, I mean, it's it's just fascinating because when I, when I tell people that, uh, you know, the Quran itself says, إِنَّ الدِّينَ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ الْإِسْلَامِ uh, it also says, It will not be accepted. You know, only Islam is the religion of Allah. When you say things like this, you know, you have some Muslims say, no, 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 no. Everyone is going to make it to heaven and you'll be judged according to your works. And I don't know where they get this idea from. The Quran is very clear about it. We will cover all of that as we go through all of this. I'm just laying a foundation, introducing this material, and we will go into some great depth as we go forward. Now, let's take from Quran to Hadith to doctrine and then law. Let's have a look at how the Quran and Hadith end up as doctrine and law. This is the Quran here. You already have had, you have already had a fair example in Abraham and the ones with him as they said to their people, surely we are completely quit of you. And whatever you worship apart from Allah, we disbelieve in you and between you and us, enmity, hostility, hatred, ill will, animosity, antagonism. That is the meaning of enmity has appeared. And abhorrence, extreme repugnance, loathing, abomination. These are very nasty words to describe people with. So enmity has appeared and abhorrence forever until you believe in Allah alone. And of course, Muslims, believe in Allah, Christians do not. Therefore, they must treat us with enmity and abhorrence. Indeed, I will definitely ask for forgiveness for you. In no way do I possess anything for you from Allah. So this is the Dr. Khali translation, Quran 64. Now, let's have a look at the doctrine of al-wala wal-bara, disassociation and enmity or loyalty and disavowal, how this has now translated into doctrine. After loving Allah and his messenger, Allah obligates us to love those who love Allah and his messenger and hate those who oppose Allah and his messenger. So by default, Muslims are required by doctrine to hate non-Muslims. The Islamic belief system, the Aqidah, obligates every Muslim to love the people of Tawheed, the Muslims, and hate the people of Shirk. So this is a God who teaches hatred, according to the official doctrine of Islam. This obligation comes from the creed of Abraham, the creed we are ordered to follow. So according to Islamic law and according to Islamic doctrine, Abraham, Abraham of the Bible, has taught the Muslims to hate Jews and hate Christians. Right. And, and this doctrine, al-wala al-bara, by the way, is a big deal because many of those uh, who joined al-Qaeda, for instance, or are jihadis, uh, they adhere to this doctrine, basically leaving everything behind for the sake of Allah. Correct. So now let's have a quick look at what the Encyclopedia of Islam tells us about this. It says here, those who died after spending their lives waging war against the appetite of soul, the nafs, were regarded as martyrs. So those who died, so you can die as a martyr if you die in jihad, killing or being killed for Allah. Notice it says here, even if he dies in his own bed, he is a shahid who will be treated as if he had been killed fighting alongside the prophet. Okay, fine. So you can be treated as a martyr, as a shahid, who with the same honors as someone who died in jihad, even if you die in your own bed. Other imami traditions declare as martyrs those who in their lifetime practiced muddarat, 
i.e. those who treated others in a friendly manner while concealing their true attitude towards them. Now, mudarat is the Sunni word, which everyone knows as taqiyah. They claim it is a Shia practice. However, if you look for mudarat through the Sunni Islamic sources, you will barely find this word. They simply call it taqiyah as well. So you will die as a martyr for lying about your well, for lying towards others, treating them as if they are your friends, but actually hating them in your heart. This will make you die as a martyr in this life. Right. Fascinating. Fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. Um, carry on, brother. No, you know, we still have time uh, to cover even more. Certainly. Okay. So now let's look at Islam's two purposes and let's look at two critical verses of the Quran. And then these will be expressed in doctrine and law as we go forward. Quran 4, 157, Islam's religious purpose. They said in boast, we killed Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah, but they killed him not, nor crucified him. Of a surety, they killed him not. On this basis, Islam rejects and seeks to correct the gospel, i.e. the crucifixion, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And also, once you go into the seerah, you will see that they replace Jesus with Muhammad. Within the seerah, Muhammad is deified. Muhammad becomes a god within the seerah. Then you go to Quran 3.104, Islam's political purpose. This is the fundamental doctrine of Islam. It's called commanding the right and forbidding the wrong. We will go into depth in this in the future. Let there arise out of you a group of people inviting to all that is good, enjoining what is right and forbidding what is wrong. Understand good as defined by the Sharia, not by your internal moral sense, and enjoining what is right and forbidding what is wrong as defined by the Sharia. Commanding the right and forbidding the wrong is the fundamental doctrine of Islam. It guides the ummah's socio-political behavior and agenda. And if you're not a Muslim, unfortunately, Sharia is binding upon you. This, enjoining what is right, in other words, obliging everyone to do what is considered right under the Sharia and forbidding you from doing anything that goes against the Sharia, well, Sharia is binding upon non-Muslims too. So Muslims must, one way or another, make us follow the Sharia. Absolutely. And of course, this is where you get the religious uh, police authority, for instance, is to enforce the what is a virtue and also go after those who do a vice. Um, so the, all of that comes from there. Correct. And we will see that within the law. We will actually have a look at that within the law. Uh, how much time do we have, Al-Fadi? I think we have about maybe a minute or two. So if you want to wrap up this one and we'll pick it up next time, that'll be great. Okay, so let me go here. Let me have a brief look at commanding the right and forbidding the wrong. Let me show you, this is commanding the right and forbidding the wrong within the Sharia, within the uh, Umdat al-Salik. Let's have a quick look here. This is the, this is the rule and well, this is just the title headings, right? The chapter headings. You must have knowledge of the wrong act. You need to explain that something is wrong to the non-Muslim or the Muslim. Then you must forbid the act verbally. You need to say something. Within this, if that is not sufficient, you need to censure with harsh words. In other words, insult. Use vile, harsh, abusive language. This is legal. Then you must write the wrong by hand. Now, you can figure out for yourself what it is to write something by hand. Then to use intimidation. Then assault. Then force of arms. Intimidation, so hit them first, then intimidate them, then assault them. This means use of weapons. And if that is not sufficient, go get some friends and bring weapons. This is what commanding the right and forbidding the wrong entails. This is not religious. This is entirely gang warfare and political. 
Absolutely. I mean, I like uh, your mention of uh, writing the wrong by hand. What in the world does that mean? Fighting, wrestling, slapping? I mean, uh, you, you get the idea, folks. Breaking. I mean, it's very clear, you know, very clear what's going on here. And uh, and this is in one of the most reputable Sharia law, basically, um, uh, collections, if you wish, or a ruling book, uh, you know, Umdat al-Salik or the Reliance of the Travelers. And it is based on the Shafi'i school, if, if my memory serves me correct here. Very good. Yes. Well, thank you, brother. And, uh, you know, what should people expect next time, uh, just to as a, a way of a teaser here? I will go through some statistics on the Muslims. So, of course, these statistics are very well. We'll have a look at the Akida, the Islamic creed, and we'll okay. continue as we're going, just talking about laws, talking about doctrine, and talking about how these are applied and how we can see these in the actions of Muslims. Wonderful. You heard the man. We hope to see you next time. This is Al-Fadi, over and out. God bless. Take care. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back after this message. You're listening to Let Us Reason with Al-Fadi. We depend on the generous gifts of our supporters to produce this program. To join us in this work, go to patreon.com and search for CIRA International. That's C-I-R-A International. You can also donate through PayPal. Go to CIRAInternational.com to learn more. Your support will help us continue introducing Muslims to the gospel of Christ. Now, back to Let Us Reason. Today, we are going to take a look at what we call the uh, Orthodox Aqidah uh, of Islam, or the Islamic Aqidah. And with me here, of course, in studio to unpack all of that for us, our dear brother, Lloyd DeYoung. Lloyd, welcome back, brother, and thank you for the amazing work that uh, you do and for the work that you've done uh, with us so far in this uh, particular series. Uh, uh, please uh, walk us through this uh, so-called Aqidah. Oh, thank you. Great pleasure to be here. So, basic orthodoxy in Islam. Just like Christians have the Nicene Creed, for instance, Islam has its own creed. It's called the Aqidah, and this was formulated roughly around the 9th century the Aqidah refers to those matters of faith which are believed in with certainty and conviction. I would have to go into the Sharia later to explain the, what they mean by certainty and conviction, because these are legal terms with very, very clear definitions, very explicit definitions in the Sharia. And they also believe in one's heart and one's soul. They are not tainted with any doubt or uncertainty. Doubt in Islam is illegal for a Muslim. It is not allowed. Now, like the Nicene Creed, it establishes orthodox beliefs and refutes deviations. It is the foundation of the faith. It consists of matters which are known from the Quran and sound a hadith, and which the Muslim must believe in his heart. Notice this is a very subtle pointer. It doesn't mean he needs to say them out loud. He can lie about them as long as he believes them in his heart, in acknowledgement of the truth of Allah and his messenger. Popular statements of basic Sunni Islamic doctrine or articles of faith are the Aqidah al-Tahawiyah, for instance, the Ashari Aqidah and the Maturidi. And Aqidah is a primary science within Islam. And so, yeah, by the way, this is a legal loophole. This here is a legal loophole. These words are very subtle when they make these little changes. Now, notice here, we follow the sunnah of the Prophet and the congregations of the Muslims, and we avoid deviation, differences, and divisions. This is very important. Let's look at number 74. We love the people of justice, and we hate people of injustice and treachery. That's you, if you're not a Muslim. And notice this. Have you heard the French saying, Allah knows best? Well, it's actually part of the Islamic creed. When our knowledge about something is unclear, we say, Allah knows best. This is actually 
a part of the Islamic creed. It's a statement of faith in Islam, something Muslims have to believe, something they have to internalize, and they must keep this with them in their hearts. Now, faith aside, Islam is a religion of law. Thus, we have two basic questions that follow. What are its laws? Where are they written? We need to define this. Now, let's have a look at the Pakistani court system and Islamic law. And let's look at Quran 65.4. Everyone is very familiar with Quran 65.4. This is the one, well, you know what this is, and it is the source of endless debate in circles. Let's end that debate today. On the basis of the exploratory analysis of the reported cases, the following books are found to be relied upon more frequently by the courts to derive what is an authentic point of Islamic law on a particular issue. One, the Hedayah, translated by Charles Hamilton, 1791. Two, Digest of Muhammadan Law by Neil Bailey. Three, The Muhammadan Law by Said Amir Ali. And four, Principles of Muhammadan Law by Dr. Badiev Mullah. This is in a paper called The Genealogical Analysis of Islamic Law Books Relied on in the Courts of Pakistan by Professor of Law, PhD, Shahbaz Ahmed Chima, okay, as well as Samir Ozer Khan, Assistant Professor, College of Law, University of the Punjab. So these are two law professors who are telling us which fiqh books are being used in the court system today in Pakistan. Let's have a look. They've mentioned here this, this Digest of Muhammadan Law by Neil Bailey. Let's have a look at this here. So this is the book here. This goes way back. The British had this translated a long time ago. Al-Fadi, are you there at the moment? I am. Al-Fadi, can you read for me the highlighted section in yellow, please? Yes. Um, it says, Fourth, when a man has had sexual intercourse, uh, intercourse with a girl under the age of nine years and has re uh, ruptured, uh, I, I cannot see really the rest of the... Uh, the parts. Okay, then the parts, I'll read it. Okay, so. uh, rupture the parts. Okay. Uh, it is unlawful of him to have further connection with her, but she is not released from her ties if connected with him by marriage or slavery. If no rupture has taken place, the prohibition is not incurred according to the most valid opinion. So the most valid opinion is the ijma, the consensus of the scholars. Now, do you know what this means, Al-Fadi? Well, I mean, uh, certainly it's talking about, uh, you know, child, uh, basically rape here. This is when a man has sexual intercourse with his prepubescent wife, right? If he destroys her private parts and rips her open so that from the bottom of her vagina, it rips it, the skin open to the anus, then he should not have sex with her again. However, if he does do this with his prepubescent child wife and he does not destroy her this way medically, then he may continue to do so without issue. That is what this means. This explains, this is the Quranic law, which is derived from Quran 65.4. Let me continue. Let's have a look at the reliance of the traveler. We look at a few sources here. Quran 65.4 says, As for your women who have despaired of further menstruating, if you are in doubt, their waiting period shall be three months. And those who have not menstruated yet. Right? We all know this verse. A woman's postmarital waiting period, the idda, rule N9.1. There is no waiting period for a woman divorced before having had sexual intercourse with her husband. Fantastic. N9.2. A waiting period is obligatory for a woman divorced after intercourse, whether the husband and wife are prepubescent, have reached puberty, or one has reached 
maturity and one is prepubescent and the other has not. Intercourse means copulation. So notice, a waiting period is obligatory for a woman divorced after intercourse if she is, well, yeah. Notice it says here you can have sex with your prepubescent wife. Uh, your thoughts on this, Alfadi, before I go on? I know. I mean, it's uh, it's uh, very troubling, uh, to be honest with you. And this is the verse that we bring to the forefront uh, to bring to the attention of our Muslim friends. And yet they adamantly deny that it means this. Yes, yes. I will continue. When a woman has been made love to, she must repeat the ghusl. This is the ritual bathing after sex. So when a woman has been made love to, she must repeat the bathing if two conditions exist, that she is not a child but rather old enough to have sexual gratification. So if she's not a child, she should then bathe. But if she is a child, bathing is not obligatory upon her. I hope this is clear to the audience. So it says here, when you have made love to your wife, she must repeat the bathing if she is not a child. But if she is a child, bathing is not obligatory upon her. A full indemnity is paid for injuries which paralyze these members or for injuring the peritoneal wall between the vagina and rectum so they become one aperture. So notice this is recognized in Islamic Royal Alliance 0413, Book of Justice, page 592. This rupturing of this wall between vagina and anus is a recognized issue in Islam and you can receive compensation for this. Now, final one. This is the Fiqh to Educate Women from the Heavenly Ornaments by Hishti Zeva. The Jewels of Paradise, Heavenly Ornaments, a favorite with the people of the Indian subcontinent as well as the Indian Muslim diaspora all over the world. It is a comprehensive encyclopedia, in fact, of Fiqh, Islamic rituals and morals. Five, if a person has sexual intercourse with a minor girl, Bathing will not be obligatory on her, but in order to get into the habit, she should be made to bath. Notice, if you have sexual intercourse with a minor, Fadi, uh, what does minor mean? Well, I mean, uh, minor is just someone who's under the age of uh, puberty, basically. Correct. Two, if a woman is under age, but not so small, that if one has intercourse with her, there is a fear of the vaginal tissues tearing to such an extent that the vagina and anus will virtually come together, then by the insertion of the glands of the penis into her vagina, bathing will become obligatory fad on the man if he has reached, if he has reached the age of puberty, if he has reached the age of puberty. However, if there is the aforementioned fear in a very minor goal, then the mere insertion of the penis does not render bathing obligatory. We're now seeing in another Islamic law source, the very same rulings. But notice they make a distinction between a woman who is underage, a minor, and a very minor girl. Now, I will drop links in the chat later, perhaps in the comments, and I will, you know, so that hopefully that can be pinned. I will show you a fatwa on Islam QA, which discusses this. The Islamic scholars have agreed there is no minimum age for sex with a child in Islam. There is no minimum age. So even sex with infants, infant being defined as a baby in the cradle, is legal. If a person whose testicles have been cut off inserts his penis into the back part of anyone or the vagina of a woman, bathing will be obligatory on both of them if both are mature. So if you have sex with someone, bathing is obligatory if they are both mature. If they're not mature, well, it'll be obligatory on the one who is mature. So, Fadi, uh, Al-Fadi, your thoughts on that. This is from Baish Dizevr. It's an encyclopedia of Islam, dealing in a very simple way with the tenets and principles to practice in day-to-day -day life. Al-Fadi, your thoughts, please. 
There is nothing to say here, brother. I mean, it's just uh, as disgusting as it sounds, actually. And we want to apologize to our audience. Uh, that's not our intent, but we want to share with you from these sources. That's what these sources are saying. So you can see why uh, this is a very troubling issue. If it is uh, anything outside of Islam, people will be jumping all over it and saying this is child abuse. But here we go. This is what Islam and its Sharia teach. Let's see how many people will make that claim now. Right. So shall I continue or shall we end here? I would say let's end here and uh, then yeah, we yeah. will come back again. But what should people expect next time? So I will continue with some more of these laws because I want to settle the matter of Quran 65.4. I want to show how the Quranic verse and the Hadith of Aisha were then taken into doctrine and then transmitted into law and now expressed as a legal right, as permission to have sex with underage prepubescent minors. In fact, even with infants. And we will see that as well. Yeah. And just for the benefit of those who are watching right now, I did a uh, complete video series with David Wood recently on this very topic about the age of Aisha. And this, of course, is going to highlight for you uh, the fact that it is absolutely acceptable uh, to have uh, a marriage, child marriage in Islam, even not only at nine year old, but even as my brother mentioned here, even as a young, uh, basically, uh, baby, uh, if you wish, uh, one year old. So uh, I hope that everyone is going to be watching this, sharing it with others, and uh, for the purpose, of course, to wake up our Muslim friends from uh, this deep sleep that they're in, because not a whole lot of them actually will be aware of things like this. But these are their own rulings and their own uh, primary sources. Thank you, brother. Uh, this is Al-Fadi, over and out. Take care. God bless. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.